I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and uh, open it again to the Psalms. Uh, If you have trouble knowing where books are in the Bible, the Psalms are just kind of right in the middle. So if you have a Bible with you or you're looking on with someone, just kind of find the middle and drop it open and find uh, Psalm 96. For the next uh, few weeks, we'll continue in this series, a sermon series called Psalms, uh, called Psalms for Every Season. There is a bug flying around me. Oh, how cool would that have been if I'd have got it? Um, did I? It didn't come back. I took a shower this morning, I promise. We're in this series called Psalms for Every Season, looking at different seasons and movements of our life and responses of our heart to God, uh, responses of of prayer to God that are shaped by God's own sort of prayer and songbook within His Word, the Psalms. That's what the Psalms really are, a collection of 150 songs to the Lord, 150 uh, uh, songs of of prayer and, and desire to give praise and adulation and to seek help from God. And so today we're looking at Psalm 96 for those seasons of our lives that are just filled with worship, full of gladness in the Lord and seeing how the Psalms shape the way that we worship, the way that we praise. Uh, We've said often, I've said often that people are hardwired for worship. And and this is uh, obvious and most clearly obvious at uh, sporting events. Uh, and and worship, uh, the, the, the way that we are hardwired for worship comes out, and it's just obvious, in the way that often praise and cheering flow through a whole crowd at an arena. Uh, those of you who like to go to baseball games know the American tradition that is the wave. Right? starts with one section. It's usually that weird section that sits probably a little bit too close to the beer vendors, but it starts there. And then often will circulate around the, the entire stadium if you're lucky. Now, I'm, I'm the introvert in our family, and I don't love the wave necessarily, but my wife does. And so when the wave comes around, she ensures that I participate. And, and, sometime, and after a while, it's fun, especially if you watch the wave go all the way around the stadium, if you're in a circular stadium. Uh, we often go to basketball, Lobo basketball games at the pit, and the pit is obviously there's seats all the way around. And there's a guy who sits behind us. He's the wave guy. I don't know what he looks like, but I know what he sounds like. And I missed him this last year because we weren't able to go in person. But he'll stand up in the middle of the game. And I don't know if anybody's told him this or not, but the wave doesn't really belong at basketball, but he's determined. And he'll jump up in the middle of the game. He'll say, wave, wave, wave on three. One, two, three. And, and he's in our section, so we have to participate. And so we'll woo, you know. And then and, and it'll, it'll get to about section M and then it stops. And then wave guy again, wave, wave, wave on three. And he's going to keep going until the wave makes it all the way around. So I want to tell people in section M, just get on board and let it go so we can be done with wave guy. But, but worship, praise, cheering, it's, it's, it's infectious, right? It just, it, it gets into us. And after a while, the things that drive us crazy, like the wave guy, eventually they become, you know, kind of, I don't know, adorable in their own way. Not only is praise infectious, and it speaks to uh, uh, just the way that we're hardwired for worship, but you know that the opposite is also true. And Twitter is a good example of this. 
Not only are we hardwired to, to worship, or, or, or the, the way that we're hardwired to worship, to speak about things that are good and glorious with, with passion and zeal, but we're also hardwired, that, that hardwired aspect of our, uh, uh, let me say that differently, the aspect of our being that is hardwired for worship also comes out in negative ways when we worship, when we express, when we propagate and praise things that are quite negative. Twitter's a great example of that how venom, venom and, and vitriol and lies can become infectious because they're things that we love and we just, I love this lie, even though I wouldn't say that it's a lie, or I love this insult of this person. See how awesome this guy owned this other dude. That's probably a sermon for another time, but whether it's the wave at the sporting event or Twitter and the way that things spread there, both are examples of how we are, we are created by God to magnify worship, to magnify praise, to praise things as a part of who we are. We see this very same thing in all the positive ways, in all the best ways, described for us in Psalm 96, where we see, and this is the main idea of the psalm and of our our study of God's word this morning, that we are made to worship God in ways that bring the whole world to sing his praises. We are made to worship God in ways that inspire other people to praise him too, to worship him too, like wave guy. Guy who loves the wave, and he's going to do whatever he can to get the wave going at the pit. So are we made by God to worship him in ways that inspire others to worship him as well. This morning, as we see this idea made clear to us in God's word, I hope that we would come to understand and to love the fact that we are made to be joyous, joyful worshipers of God in all creation. Stand with me, would you, as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading his word, Psalm 96. The psalmist writes, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his, his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all God's For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. May God be honored as we read his word. You may be seated. We are made to worship God in ways that bring the whole world to sing his praises. And Psalm 96 calls the people of God to do exactly this. First of all, Psalm 96 calls the people of God to worship God the Lord, declare his salvation. 
Worship the Lord, declare his salvation. The, the context of this psalm, many of the psalms we know are occasional psalms. They, some of them will have a little header, maybe uh, uh, right after the, the, the psalm number, that will give an indication as to who wrote the psalm, or maybe an event in the life of the people of Israel that brought about this psalm. This psalm doesn't have one of those indicators, but uh, it comes almost directly out of 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 through 33, where it probably originally appeared before it was finalized in the the form that we have in Psalm 96. If you go back to 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 and following, you'll see that this psalm was first sung by King David after he defeated the Philistines, those perennial enemies of the people of God, and he recovered the Ark of God, you know, the Ark of God, not the one that Noah uh, 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 survived the flood in, but the Ark of God, which was that, that box that was overlaid with gold, with cherubim on top, in which were the tablets of the uh, Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and a jar of manna, that, that, uh, that Ark of God that was in the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple. It had been stolen by the Philistines, and David went to war against them, and he recovered the Ark. And as they're bringing the Ark back into the city of Jerusalem, David leads the people of Israel in this song. This psalm comes on the heels of triumph, specifically God's triumph over his enemies. And, and it's helpful for us to read it that way. This is not just a psalm of praise. It's also a psalm of divine, divine victory. But notice what's absent in this victorious song. There's no language of the Lord's dashing his enemies. There's nothing about the slaughter of armies before the people of God. There's nothing there about the destruction of their pagan temples. No, instead, there is only a global call to worship the God who saves his people. This is what is important for us to understand this morning from Psalm 96, that worship of the God who saves is meant to be global. It's not supposed to just be in the hearts and in the throats of his own people, but people throughout the world are to see that the Lord saves. The psalmist begins, sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth. Do you notice that? Not just his own people, not just some folks that can carry a tune, but everything and everyone. The earth is here probably best understood, not to be the the literal uh, 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 orb of rock that is floating around the sun, but the earth is all of the peoples of the earth, the intelligent parts of the world. And the rest of the psalm leads us that way, as it refers over and over again to peoples and nations and families, to the whole world. Nine times in 13 verses, the psalmist calls the earth, the peoples, the nations, the families of the world, the, the world to sing. This whole song is a call to all of the intelligent world, every man, woman, and child in all the earth to sing, praise, and bring glory to God, but specifically to bring praise and glory to God in worship of his salvation, that he rescues, that he saves, that he is a redeemer. And the salvation that's in mind when David probably first sang this song in First Chronicles was God's salvation from the enemy Philistines. But by itself, here is Psalm 96, this song, this psalm of praise takes on an idea of salvation that, that makes it deeper, makes it higher, makes it more significant. This isn't just salvation from enemies. This is salvation from all things that keep us from God. 
And just as God's salvation from the Philistines was meant to draw the perspective of God's people outward and upward to remember God's greater promise of crushing the head of the serpent to bring salvation to the seed of the woman, so also does Psalm 96 draw our view of God's salvation higher than just salvation in battle. But to see that the Lord, that Yahweh, the God who is, rescues his people from sin and death and the spiritual consequences of the rejection of his righteousness. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Verses 2 and 3 are explicitly evangelistic. Did you pick up on that? By evangelistic, we mean proclaiming of the good news. When it comes to declaring the Lord's salvation, verse 2 says, literally, bring the news of his salvation. Or it says, tell of his salvation, the, the word that is used in the Greek, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, uses the verb form evangelize, essentially. Evangelize of his salvation. Tell the good news of his redemption day to day. Verse 3 has for us the word declare, which means to announce officially. If you like to read and study out the New Living Translation, you probably see it there as publish. Publish His glory among the nations. Bring the good news to all the earth that God wondrously saves. In seasons of our life where we are led to worship, we should worship the Lord declaring His salvation. Understand this morning, church, that true worship leads to evangelism leads to declaring the good news that God saves. And evangelism is meant to lead to worship. That's the point of it. The point of telling other people that God saves is to help them to understand and to know the God who saves by trusting in His Son, Jesus, who is our Savior, who saves us by dying in our place on the cross for sins and by raising His life from the grave over, in victory over sin and death so that other people can be brought into worshipful relationship with God. So since true worship leads to evangelism, and evangelism is meant to lead to worship, dear friends, this morning, pray that God would lead you to praise Him by boasting publicly in His salvation. Boasting in the Lord sounds kind of weird to say. We we don't, when somebody boasts, we, we don't particularly see them as humble people. They often boast about themselves. Look how great I am, how great looking I am. Look at this awesome gold medal that I just won in the Olympics or whatever the case may be. Look how awesome everything is about me. When we boast in the Lord, we are not bragging in ourselves. When we boast in the Lord, we're not committing some sort of arrogant, sinful thing. When we boast in the Lord, what we are saying to the world is look how great our God is who saves us from sin, who brings us into right relationship with Him. Look how awesome and great and loving and kind and yet just and merciful He is to sinners that come to Him in faith. Look at Him. Enjoy Him. Praise Him. That's what it is to boast in the Lord. Worship the Lord. Declare His salvation. The psalm leads us further in verses 4 through 6 to worship the Lord because there is no other God. Worship Yahweh, the God who is. There is no other God worthy of worship. Verse 4 tells us that a great God deserves great praise. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. A few weeks ago when I was on uh, vacation, our family uh, visited worship at a sister church here in town, Desert Springs Church. And Pastor Ryan Kelly there, as he was giving kind of a call to worship to the church, he read Psalm 96.4, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
And he said, great, he said, because the Lord is great and deserves great praise, what that means is our praise, our worship of God should be attended with great volume of voice. Sing loudly, sing gladly. Our praise should have great quality of song, not just in the notes that are played, but in the words that are sung. We should give attention to those things. There should be great truth in what we say from God's word in the pulpit. There should be great attention of our minds as we reflect on the truths of the gospel that we sing together and on what is declared from God's word each day. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, not just in volume, but in every way. This great God of the cosmos who made the heavens, whose salvation the whole world must hear, is also the only God that is worthy of any praise in the world, the psalmist reminds us. We're told that God is to be feared, he's to be worshipped, he's to be revered above all gods because the gods of the pagan nations, the idols among the peoples are worthless, lifeless, dead. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 44 verses 13 through 17 writes this to speak about the folly, the foolishness of making, creating, and and worshiping idols. Just listen. He says the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and he lets it grow among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it, and then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he breaks and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol, and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. The god that I just carved out of the same tree that I used half of to cook my meat. With the people of God throughout Scripture have understood is that idols are worthless, lifeless, hopeless, and helpless. That those things that are made by the hands of men and worshipped in the hearts of men can do nothing to save us from the greatest problem that we have. Contrary to these empty idols, the Lord, Yahweh, is the maker of heaven, the psalmist says. And the maker of earth. He's made it all. He rules over all of it. He sustains all of it by the word of his power. The God who is above all things, who created all things, who saves his people, is not only worthy of great praise, but he is the only God worthy of praise. Everything else is a worthless, helpless, hopeless, lifeless idol. Where idols bear the images of their makers and all the glory of the materials that they're made of, The Lord who made heaven and earth has inexpressible splendor and majesty, the psalmist tells us. True divine strength and beauty which are reflected in the things that he has made. Worship the Lord. He is the only God worthy of your praise. Friends, true worship is focused. Focused on the only one worthy of worship. True, focused, true, true worship is focused only upon the God who was and who is and who is to come. So then this morning, pray that the only true God would focus your worship upon Him only. 
Our worship should not only be filled with declarations of God's salvation, but our our worship should be focused on God alone. Our problem, particularly I think in the West and in America, is that we're not often as honest as we should be about the praise and worship that we give to idols. There are lots of things that we give praise and worship to that are not God. There are a lot of things that we devote our our lives to, lots of different systems and structures and people that we look to for hope, for answers to suffering and pain. For, for solutions to the greatest things that plague our lives that we, that, that we hang on to, to give us a, a word, to get us through the day, to get us into the next day, to help us to survive. And we give all of our attention and praise and all the glory that's due to God to these other things. We don't have necessarily a physical idol problem. Our, our houses aren't, aren't full of little wood and metal images of gods that we bow down before and worship. But our hearts and our phones, our computers are full of lots of other things that that we give our time and worship and devotion and praise to. Does this mean then that we cannot cheer on our favorite teams? Listen, I probably scream louder at sporting events uh, that have a team that I love than most everybody else around me. And I have to be careful when there's games on Saturday because I got to preach on Sunday and it's helpful to keep my voice. Does this mean that we, we cannot recognize with joy when things are done excellently? Does this mean that when we're with our quilting club or our knitting club and somebody has just knitted one heck of a scarf, that we can't say, Ethel, awesome scarf. Does this mean that we can't promote issues and causes that affect our community? Does this mean that we can't hand out Employee of the month awards because our worship and our praise is only due to God, so we better not praise people for doing their job well. No, it doesn't mean that. But having focused worship upon God only does lead us to to be mindful and to be so, so, so careful and aware that we not ascribe our hope, that we not give our ultimate joy, that we not seek our spiritual well being in these things because they are utterly unworthy of our worship. They cannot bring joy. They cannot give life. They cannot save. They cannot deliver. And they are helpless to give any sense of, or any, not just a sense, but any sort of real salvation. So go cheer for the Lobos as their seasons start up again here in the fall. Cheer for the Americans as they win as many gold medals as possible to prove that we're still awesome at sports. Cheer, cheer on your coworkers when they do a good job. Encourage your kids, not just in sports, but chess club and whatever, right? Encourage them, cheer them on, right? But don't find your hope. Don't find your life. Don't find your meaning. Don't find your security in those things. Your worship belongs only to God. Worship the Lord, declare his salvation. Worship the Lord. He's the only one worthy of your praise. As verses 7 through 9 continue, the psalmist says, Worship the Lord. Promote His praise among all peoples. Now here's kind of a, kind of a redundancy, isn't there, between these verses and verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, worship the Lord, declare his salvation. Verses 7 through 9, worship the Lord, promote his praise among all peoples. The psalms do this over and again. They kind of cycle through the same sort of things. These verses, 7 through 9, should catch our eye. 
Just as verses 1 through 1 and 2 began, sing, 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 sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Do you think the psalmist wants you to do anything? So also he begins uh, verses 7 and 8 this way. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That word ascribe is not a word that I use regularly day to day. A better word for our generation would probably be something like recognize or give. Again, the New Living Translation helps us understand these verses. In the translation there, Psalm 96, 7 through 8, it says, O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Ascribing means taking notice with our minds that God is worthy of worship and giving with our lips and with our lives the praise that is due to him, the glory that is due his name. Glory is the, the giving God glory is expressing the infinite beauties of God, bragging on God to God. That's what it means to glorify him. And notice in these verses, 7 through 9, who is meant to recognize the glory and the strength of the Lord? Who is called to enter his courts with an offering of praise and thanksgiving, worshiping him in reverence? Who is called to do this? The families of the peoples and all the earth. Here's this wonderful reality displayed again that we, human beings made in the image of God, are intended for worship intended to give praise and to brag on the beauties of God to God. We are meant to see in full glow all of the many beautiful perfections of God and to bask in them with all the rest of mankind. And this is precisely what Psalm 96 exhorts us to do, to promote his praise among all peoples. Not just to enjoy praising God ourselves, but to enjoy and to exult in when other people praise him also. From the Nubra people in western China to the Korobu in Brazil, from the Baigo in Sudan to the Finnish Lap in Finland, and the Alia in India to every deaf person around the globe who has not yet received the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are meant to proclaim the wonderful salvation of God to all peoples and to call them to join us in giving their undivided worship and praise to Him alone. Worship the Lord. Promote His praise among all peoples. Friends, true worship cannot be stopped. True worship will not be stopped. So pray that God would use your public worship to draw others to know Him. Do you know what that means? That means your public worship has to extend beyond 1045 this morning. It's got to follow you to Applebee's or wherever you go for lunch. It's got to follow you to the time clock when you punch in in the morning at work tomorrow. It's got to follow you into your kid's school as you volunteer there to help children learn to read or do their math. The public praise of God has got to follow you in the marketplace when you're at the grocery store or at Starbucks. The public praise of God is is meant to go everywhere his people go so that his people might fill the earth as more people are brought to recognize and praise God for who he is. Worship the Lord. Promote his praise among all people. So throw a map up on the screen behind you. You may not be able to see it in detail and it's because it's a big map and there's a lot of information on it. This is from the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And each one of these dots represents 
uh, an unengaged and unreached people group in the world. What that means is these are groups of people, people that come have maybe a particular ethnicity or a specific dialect that they speak that have um, not yet been engaged with the gospel. So that means there is no missionary presence there. There is no gospel presence among them and that they're unreached in the sense that there is very little to no uh, evangelistic presence or, or, or Christian presence among that people group. Every one of these dots represents a group of people with a specific dialect or ethnicity in the world that has neither heard the, gospel, heard the gospel and has no indigenous Christians living among them. See how many dots there are. See how many places, how many corners of the globe have not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who have not yet been able to praise the name of the God who saves in concert with the rest of his people around the world. Psalm 96 says, worship the Lord, promote his praise among all peoples. Friends, all peoples have not yet been able to praise his name. Which means that our public worship must extend not just beyond 1045 this morning into school, into work, into the marketplace, but our public praise must extend to the nations, to the corners of the globe. There is work yet to be done. There is praise yet to be sung in ethnicities or among ethnicities and in languages around the world that have never yet sung the praise of God. You know the picture from Revelation chapter 7? I didn't intend to do this, but I'm going to go there. But you know the picture, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John the Apostle, in, in his vision of uh, in what the Lord Jesus reveals to him, uh, he writes down what he sees. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We are called to declare the Lord's salvation in all the earth and to promote his praise among all peoples. What we see in Revelation 7 verses 9 and following is what we will be doing around the throne of God in eternity. And do you see who's there? Not, not a whole bunch of white people speaking in English. Amen. I'll tell you what, one of the, some of the most comfortable, uncomfortable rooms I've ever sat in are rooms full of just white people. It's strange. And, I, and I'm one of them. Right? So we are meant to glorify and worship and sing praises of God's salvation with people of different skin color than us, or different cultural backgrounds than us to hear his praise sung in other languages and not just in the ones that we know and are popular, Spanish, Korean, German, Chinese, but in languages and dialects that are represented on that map of unreached and unengaged people groups. All of them will be singing praise to God in eternity. And until all of those people have been reached, his praise has not yet been promoted among all people. So church, there is a call for us to get to work, to get to work promoting his praise among all people. Finally, verses 10 through 13, the psalmist encourages us, worship the Lord. Join creation in the glad hope of Christ's return. Verses 10 through 13, I'll read them again. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. There's that word nations again. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and everything that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. These last four verses of Psalm 96 are bookended by verse 10 and verse 13. Verse 10, on the one hand, has that call to promote among the nations the gracious rule of God. The Lord reigns. Say it to the nations. And that he will judge justly. Verse 13 proclaims that the Lord is coming to judge the world in righteousness and faithfulness. So you see how verse 10 and verse 13 kind of bookend here what's in the middle. This is the kind of God that Yahweh is, that the Lord is. He is a faithful, fair, equitable judge who does not let injustice pass him by and he is coming to judge. These verses are meant to be sung joyfully though. We're meant to sing with joy the fact that God is coming to judge his people. Now, the judgment of God is not often something that is sung about with uh, uh, joy by many or thought of as a joyful event by many. But here, and especially in verses 12 and 13, we find that God's judgment upon the peoples, upon the earth, is met with the rejoicing and the gladness of all creation. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. Let the field exult. The trees of the forest will sing for joy. Everything in all creation is going to rejoice when the Lord comes in judgment, the psalmist tells us. Now again, the psalmist is speaking in very poetic fashion here. He's he's revealing a truth that God's people in Israel were well acquainted with, that the unjust sinfulness of mankind has perverted God's intention for creation. You know, we see that brokenness, that twistedness, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and the fall where the man and the woman ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the curse that that brought upon creation. The the difficult relationship that man has with the earth, thorns and thistles will make his agricultural work difficult. Childbirth will be painful for the woman. Sin has perverted God's good intention for creation and all creation is groaning for a day when it will be made new, when the Lord comes to judge. The Apostle Paul says this about the the struggle, the the fighting, the, the, uh, the discontent of creation until Christ comes again, if we can put it that way. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Those of you husbands who have wives, who have born children, and you're in the hospital there with them, you know the kind of groaning that accompanies childbirth. Women, you who have birthed children, know the pain and the groaning that comes with childbirth. That's the picture that Paul uses to to speak about the pain that the earth, that creation, that the cosmos is undergoing until God returns. It's undergoing that pain because of our sin, our rejection of, of God's holiness and his righteousness and his desire to have loving relationship with us. Paul continues in Romans 8, 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Friend, are you groaning today? Are our people groaning around you? Do you see pain and suffering and sorrow and hurt and wildfires and tornadoes and tsunamis and hurricanes? Everything is groaning 
as though, because something is not right. And do you know what's not right? Us. Us. Our sinful hearts have rejected the righteous rule and reign of God. And it's because of our sin that not only creation is groaning, but it's because of our sin that we are groaning. Our hearts cry out daily, God, someone do something. Even those of us who who might reject the possibility of a God or the reality that God exists or aren't certain if there is a God who exists, even they groan. Something's not right. When will justice be done? When will we fix all of these things? We're all well acquainted with images and scenes of people who have been victimized, who've been assaulted, receiving news that their assailant has been rightfully declared guilty and held responsible for their crimes. That cry of relief, that that expression of assurance that justice has finally been done. All of the groaning finally comes to fruition in a great sigh of relief and tears of joy. Understand that as scripture describes the whole created order, all the cosmos, not just the earth, but our solar system, our galaxy has been bent out of shape by the sin of mankind. This is a clear and consistent truth of God's word and all the cosmos, friends, if it were alive and intelligent and could speak words, would be crying out to God for justice. For things to be set right. This is what the psalmist alludes to. When the Lord comes in judgment, all the cosmos rejoices. Sets out a cry of of relief and a sigh of gladness that justice has come. The good news of the psalm is that a day is coming when the Lord comes to judge. And that the cosmos will breathe that cry of relief and rejoicing. And so, friends, will his people. And this is at the deepest heart of Christian worship. Again, we look to an an image of the end, an image of our state in eternity before God. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus, the risen Jesus, appearing to John, leaves him with these words. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The day of Christ's judgment, the day of Christ's return, which is, an, which is a, a distinctive Christian belief that our Savior who died for sins and who rose again will return physically and bodily to judge the earth. This is a source of our rejoicing and hope as Christians. It's strange to think about a judge coming to judge everything as that being a a joyful experience, especially for those of us who know that we are perhaps guilty of sins, right? I don't want to stand before a judge and plead guilty. That is not a a, a positive prospect for me. But the day of Christ, the, the judge of the universe, his coming in judgment is a day of rejoicing and hope for his people. Why? Not because we are perfect and sinless and want to see the world burn while Jesus whisks us away from the heathen. Now, the prospect of Christ's return is joyous. It's a day of rejoicing for Christians, for followers of Jesus. Not because we're perfect and sinless, but because we have come to see that we are the heathen that he hung on a cross and died to save from the righteous and equitable judgment of God against willful sinners. 
It's a day of justice because we know that, or a day of rejoicing because we know that when Christ comes in his justice, that our, that the judgment of God that is due to us has already been taken care of. Our sentence already paid. He is the one who exchanged his privileged place of favor at the right hand of God the Father for the seat of sinners and who himself gave to undeserving sinners his place of favor at the right hand of God. And just as he was raised from the dead, so also when he comes again to make all things new, to, to, he comes to finally undo the curse of sin upon the universe and to raise to everlasting life every man, woman, and child from among the peoples who have looked to him for help in their sin. Amen. When Christ comes again, that's a good day for us. But we also know, dear friends, that he comes in judgment. He says, I come with my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. Friends, there are some of you here this morning who are not yet followers of Jesus. And the prospect of Jesus, the righteous, sinless God of the universe, repaying you for all the things you have done is a frightening prospect. Because you know the sins of your heart. You know the sins of your past. You know your moral misdeeds. You know all of the things that you are guilty of before a holy God. But listen, that day does not have to be a frightening prospect for you. It can be a joyous one. It can be a joyful one. It can be a day of celebration. If you will come to and look upon Christ, the the one who comes to judge as also the one who hung in your place of judgment on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, God's word says, so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. You can have every hope of meeting Christ with joy and gladness and entering into the new heavens, the new earth, this world made new with joy because Christ is your king. Because the, the one who comes to judge is the one who is judged in your place. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this way, your life cannot erupt into the kind of worship and praise that Psalm 96 is calling us to. Christian, the world cannot sing and praise God the way that Psalm 96 calls us to sing and praise uh, praise Him unless they know Christ as Redeemer. There is work yet to do. Know this this morning. True worship draws out our longing for redemption. When we really worship God, when we see him and praise him for his many perfections, it should tug on those strings of our heart that are crying out today for salvation, for rescue, for justice. When we worship God, all of those things get moved within us. So this morning, as you worship God in truth and your heart longs for redemption and restoration of this world and the rescue of lost souls, this morning pray. Pray that the hope of Christ's return would be the song of worship sung not just in our hearts in this room up until 1045 or so, but that the hope of Christ's return would be the song of worship sung in every heart among all peoples throughout all the world in every nation. What a beautiful day of rejoicing would that be? Somebody wrote that in a line of a hymn, right? I wish I could attribute that to myself, but... What a great day that will be. Friends, there is, there's yet work to be done. There are not just corners of the world, but friends, there are corners of our neighborhood where the praise of God, the worship of God has yet to be sung. And there are real and significant opportunities for us to engage our neighbors, those corners of Taylor Ranch and Albuquerque and New Mexico, engaging those corners in the praise of God. And we need to be on the lookout for them.
I want to give you a couple of quick opportunities where you can begin putting into practice the kind of public worship that declares the, Lord, the, the salvation of God among all the nations, where you can put that into practice now, today, or in the very near future. First of all, as I mentioned uh, in our announcements this morning, we have need for people to teach children the gospel on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. You want to put Psalm 96 into practice? Email Becky Henderson at children at fbcwa.org and say, I'd like to help in children's ministry. I'd like to teach the gospel to children that our preschoolers and our preteens and everyone else in between might be able to sing the praise of God because they know Christ is Lord. This weekend, my wife and Becky are, uh, uh, well, my wife's already out of town. Becky will join her soon in Chicago for training uh, with regard to Crossroads Kids Clubs. We've talked about Crossroads often, and I'll just mention it one more time. It's an after-school Bible club that our church that we're wanting to, uh, uh, to, to put on or to, to uh, what's the word, execute, provide, I don't know, fill in a word there, host, whatever, at a local school, Marie Hughes Elementary, a church that we have been trying to connect with, a school, excuse me, that we've been trying to connect with in meaningful ways for a long time. They have early dismissal on Wednesdays. Their kids get out at 1245 or 12, yeah, 1245 or one. And there are a lot of parents who probably don't want their kids to just go home and stay by themselves for the, you know, two or three hours until they come home from work. And so we have an opportunity to, to host a Bible club after school for kids where we can teach them about, teach them about God, open his word with them, point them to Jesus, see their lives filled with praise and opportunity to minister to their parents and to the faculty and the staff and administration at the school so that that little corner of Taylor Ranch may begin to sing and erupt in the praises of God. Friends, there are opportunities beyond just in our church and in our community, and I hope you'll take these to heart. That as I say that we have need to teach in children's ministry, this is not just babysitting for an hour. We are investing praise and the gospel into the lives of children, right? Do, do Do we see children's Sunday school like that? We need to. We need to that we are doing a part of calling the nations to praise the Lord even as we teach our children the gospel and even as we go to our community and host a Bible club and pray for principals and staff and faculty and children and their families and point them to Jesus. Furthermore, there are lots of things that our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, does around the world to take the gospel to the nations. We saw a map uh, produced by the International Mission Board whose job it is to place missionaries among unreached and unengaged people groups. You, you, perhaps you can go. If you go to imb.org today, you can find uh, on the little Go tab at the top of their page, you can find mission trips that you can go on like tomorrow, maybe not literally tomorrow, but within a couple weeks if you want to. You don't have to wait for the church to organize something. You can get connected with a team that's going to another place around the world to take the gospel to them. You can get connected with missionaries around the world as quick as that. And be on a plane soon to a place far away to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it. But also, if you can't go, you can certainly pray. That doesn't cost you anything. And you can give. You can give to the cause of missions. You can give out of the financial abundance, the financial blessing provision that God has given to you to make sure that missionaries can stay on the field and continue to raise up indigenous leaders who sing the praise of God among the nations. You can do that through our church specifically. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, during, as you're coming in, the announcement slides were rolling through, but we have a, a kind of a collective missions offering that we're taking all, all year long called Missions 2021. 
And when you give to Missions 2021, either writing that on the little pink offering envelope or writing it in the memo line of your, of your check, 50% of that gift will go directly to the International Mission Board to fund missionaries, to keep people on the field, to get the gospel and copies of God's word to places around the world that don't have it yet. 30% of that gift will go to the North American Mission Board, which oversees church planting and ministry and church revitalization here in the United States and Canada. And 20% of that will stay in the state of New Mexico, going to Mission New Mexico to help plant churches in New Mexico, to care for pastors in rural areas uh, of the church who are trying to get the gospel to the nations and to people that are hard to reach, but who may not have uh, much to be able to support their pastors with. You can be a part of what Psalm 96 is calling us to simply by giving, but don't do it only by giving. Pray that the, nation, that, 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 that the praise of God would fill the nations. And go, friends. Whether it's going to a children's Sunday school class down the hall, or it's going halfway around the world to the Korobu people, or the Uyghurs in China, or people living in the Soviet Union who have, or former Soviet Union who have, who have not yet heard the gospel or are still without copies of God's word. You can pray, you can give, you can go. I hope that you'll do all of it in response to the worship of your heart for God who saves. We are made by God to praise him, to glorify him publicly in in the world in a way that draws other people to praise him as well. Every season of our life where our hearts are lifted to worship, friends, they ought to also be spurred to evangelism, spurred to mission, because that's the point of missions is worship, not just on our hearts, but in the hearts of all of those who are in the world who do not yet know Christ as Savior. If that description fits you this morning, you're one who does not yet know Christ as Savior, my invitation to you this morning is join the worship of God's people. Trust Jesus. Look on him who died to pay for your sins and was raised from the dead and trust him with every part of your life, expressing sorrow in your heart to God through, through prayer and words that only you can express, sorrow in your heart to God for sins that you've committed against him and asking and praying, God, I'm putting all my trust in Christ. Save me. Stir worship in my heart. Bring me to sing your praises among these people and all the peoples of the world. Save me, God. Only you can. Lead me to right relationship with you. Friend, if that's the situation that you're in this morning, I encourage you, don't just pray this way in your own heart, but come, come find someone after worship this morning to say, I need Christ as Savior. Or I've, I've started trusting him that way today. I'm beginning to worship Christ as Lord, as King of my life today. Come find me after worship. Find Pastor Danny after worship. Find any one of our church members you may be sitting by. Kids, if that's you, if you need to trust Jesus today, look to your parents and say, Mom, Dad, I need to trust Jesus. But don't delay. Begin your life of worship today. Will you join me in prayer this morning as we close our time in God's word?